I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Look, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? This is Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 76, which begins with a fade in from Black on Max taking a nap. And it ends with Furiosa reassuring Max. Joining us this week from the Harry Potter Minute, it's Gary Roby and Victoria Cope. Hello, hello. Hi, how are you? Welcome back. It's so good to hear from both of you again. It's good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you join us on a rather sleepy episode of the Mad Max Minute here. We, like I said, fade in from black on Max taking a nap, and I'm sure it's something that just doesn't ever really get to happen all that much. (laughs) No, I don't feel like he gets the time to rest ever, really. (laughs) (laughs) Max has it rough. Yeah. When you think of life in the wasteland, the last thing you think of is meaningful, restful, rejuvenating sleep. Nice naps in the sunlight. And that's certainly not what we get here. No. In fact, after we watch Max dozing for five or six seconds, we get a couple of real quick flashes and... This is where I get to flex my muscle being able to go frame by frame (laughs) because the first eight frames of this flash is what I would describe as a fetus floating in a womb or something like that. And the first thing I think of when I see fetus is Angherid. I suspect that that's exactly who it is, is Angherid's baby. Mm. I think he feels a certain level of responsibility Maybe not direct responsibility, but indirect responsibility, which we discussed at the time of her death, that even when he has nothing to do with how it happened, he still feels responsible because that's just the sort of person he is. Mm. Yeah, it can be really rough when you look at other people and then feel responsible for them. And I think this baby is just another ghost lining up in the long line of ghosts that are haunting Max. He's got a new one now. It's unfortunate that he feels that sort of level of like personal guilt for this child when like he didn't choose to be here. He got kind of all wrapped up into this because he got taken at the beginning. And I don't know, I I kind of admire that that like self-sacrifice of Max, even though like this wasn't his choice, he still wants to do the right thing. And it like plagues him a little bit. And I think he knows that about himself. He actively tried not to bring these women along to not have that responsibility. Mm -hmm. He was willing to leave them out in the desert to their fate rather than take on this responsibility because he knows this is what ends up happening. Yeah, it's rough. Victoria, what do you think about these ghosts? Well, it's it's uh, like like you're haunted by your failures. 
it's not just you know of course he's a, he's a, he's a good guy and he and he feels all this this heavy level of responsibility it's why he's always alone and portrayed as being alone on his travels and and just going along just my trying to mind his own business and then not only have this responsibility thrust upon him but then to fail and that's just not something he, i think he he doesn't want that he doesn't want that to happen of course it's i don't know like it's definitely i like the word ghost but uh, mm-hmm. instead of the word fail for sure but like it's it's essentially the same thing it's just something that he's always going to be haunted by so i think him being startled out of his nap is something that happens quite often and this is the first time just like someone's witnessing it yeah and this is not the first time we've seen max wake up like this from a nap i'm thinking back to beyond thunderdome when anna goanna wakes up max by shaking on his shoulder and he jumps awake partly Mm. because you know this little girl is shaking him but also because max doesn't wake up in the morning and stretch his arms and blink his eyes at the new sunrise that's coming over him it's like no it's fight or flight from almost the instance that you gain consciousness that's rough I feel for this guy. Mm. So it's it's a, yeah, it's a terrible way to live, right? Uh huh. Yeah, like that's the thing is every time he, every time he encounters a new group, like he it's like a one eye open thing. Yeah, he's such an empathetic character that he can't help but want to like help those who are the the weak and downtrodden or whatever, and and he suffers because of it time and time again. Ugh. The next shot that we get in this mini nightmare is Max sitting in the front seat of the war rig and these hands come up over his face and they, I guess, cover him and pull him back. It's very quick, very frenetic, but it's not something that's necessarily new. And I'll explain that. When you go back and read the Beyond Thunderdome novelization, there is a passage that Max experiences while he's wandering in the desert after he's been expelled from barter town mm. so i'm just going to put on my <laughs> audiobook voice for a moment and i'm going to read a passage from that book and when i'm done we'll talk about any similarities that might pop up <clears throat> max staggered up another rise fell on his face as the loose sand slid and shifted jerking his feet out from under him for the thousandth time spitting uselessly he tried to push himself up again his body trembling with effort He sagged back as the burning sand reached up for him with a lover's heat, welcoming him. He struggled to lift his head, resisting. A hand exploded through the sand, closed over Max's face with suffocating ferocity, wrenching him down again, choking, smothering, sucking him deeper and deeper into the desert's hidden heart. He tore through a membrane like a tissue of flesh as below him more hands reached up, grabbing, clawing. Max plunged into nothingness towards Thunderdome, waiting below its surface crawling with bodies, countless hands reaching up like writhing snakes to drag him back through an endless loop of nightmare, back to its beginning, to make him relive it over and over. Max screamed, lunging back and up in a spasm of horror, bursting back through the membrane, up out of the burning bed, the velvet pillow of smothering sand. Gasping for air as the delirium dream fell away, he scrambled to his feet and ran on, stumbling, fleeing in blind terror from the thing that lay waiting, waiting beneath the sand. Ooh, that's a nightmare. No thank you. (laughs) Right, like I'll pass. (laughs) It's interesting that imagery being very similar here of the hands like coming up around him and like pulling him back and... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the imagery from Thunderdome is very much like the 
clawing hands of death coming for him, and he must outrun it to survive. He's kind of in a similar situation here where he has to outrun this war party that is out to kill him Mm -hmm. and to kill everybody that he is here with. And so once again, he finds himself trying to outrun death. When your everyday dealings involve death, death is your eventual wage. It's the whole live by the sword, die by the sword sort of thing. Mm. And so Max knows he's on borrowed time. He's been borrowing time ever since the first movie when he chained Johnny the boy to the pickup truck. Because that was the first death that he was directly involved in that didn't involve someone, for instance, not looking where they were going. Mm. Yeah, it's the first first-hand death where he actually committed the act himself. Mm-hmm. I don't have the ability, Rick, like you do, to go frame by frame, but I did pause it during the hand-grabby time, and I was expecting all the hands to be female. I was expecting them to represent the wives and Furiosa, the people that he is with, that he is trying to protect, and is so afraid of losing. And they are not all female. It's a mix of male and female hands. Hmm. So I think it's a mixture of his current people that he's protecting mixed with the past people that he was not able to protect. They're all mixing together and coming at him and trying to drag him down. And from the image of the hands, we do a fade into seven frames of the eye-popping face of Toe Cutter from back in the first movie before he was smashed to pieces by that 18-wheeler that did him in on the highway. So I'm trying to think of like how you properly describe what Max did to Toe Cutter. That first pursuit and flattening? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the words escape me for exactly how you describe running someone into an oncoming Whoa. truck. But that first act is obviously still sticking with Max. It's a horrifying image. I know I put a lot of emphasis on Johnny the Boy, but clearly... Max getting revenge on Toe Cutter was the first big bullet point in this new chapter of his life. Mm. This is who Max is now. It still haunts him. Oh, it's rough. And I imagine that Max sees himself as being the kind of person that will eventually receive that same end. Mm. Like he doesn't see himself getting done in by getting chained to an exploding truck. He sees himself chasing or being chased and eventually just meeting his end out on the highway. Yeah. Well, that does seem fitting. That's why he can't stand in one place. He needs to be out on the road. He has a compulsion, a need. He's trying to stay ahead of whatever it is that's haunting him. Exactly. It's like that movie that I didn't see. It follows where if you stay in one place for too long, death creeps up on you and catches up with you. Like I said, didn't actually see the movie, but that's what I picked up from the previews. <laughs> I never saw that one either. Right around second seven, like halfway through second seven before we hit eight, Max wakes up, he throws his elbow out and he holds up his fist. He's ready to clock someone because he's, as I described earlier, in fight or flight mode. And Furiosa sitting on the other side of the rig, she just looks over at him like, it's okay. Calm down. No big deal. You're okay. You're among friends. She doesn't seem at all surprised. No. And the way she says it's okay is very knowing. I'm willing to bet she has very similar nightmares. Mm. Mm. Because she is also the personality that feels responsibility for the people that she's with. And 
in this case, she has voluntarily taken on this responsibility. But I think every failure she's ever had, every time someone has died under her command, she feels it. Mm. The one major difference I see between Max and Furiosa is that Furiosa has been living with the tenants of the cult of the V8. The idea that death is not an end. It's not a finality. It's another step. And so she has that, I would say, religious outlook. With Max, he lost his friend. He lost his family. He's lost a lot of good people out on the road. And I don't think he has that sort of afterlife view because he sees people die. He sees them taken from him. And I don't believe that Max looks at that situation as, oh, I'm going to see them in the great halls of Valhalla when I leave this world. And sure, Furiosa has gone against Joe. She no longer subscribes to the Kool-Aid that he's pouring for these people to drink, to make a Jonestown reference. But (laughs) I think it's hard to kick those ingrained ideas of, like, afterlives. So when you're out doing warboy stuff, and you see another warboy blow himself up by jumping into another vehicle, you think, oh, they just got a one-way ticket to Valhalla. Eventually, I will get a one-way ticket to Valhalla, and, you know, I live, I die, I live again. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely believe that, like, especially at this point, Max would be a lot more cynical about something like that. Mm. Just because of all the, like, death and suffering and just everything that he's witnessed up to this point. I'm having a hard time picturing Furiosa ever believing in the dogma of the V8 cult. Mm. Maybe it's because we've only ever known her as a rebel. Someone who is flouting the cult, running away, taking something precious from Joe. We never knew her as a proper member of the cult. I can easily imagine that she has never been on board. And that she has been playing the role, that she's been keeping herself safe until her moment. And actually, I believe, is it this minute? I'm just scrolling forward just a little bit. It is. It's at the end of this minute where I think we get a little bit of insight. Max asks her if she's ever done this before. And she says many times. Hmm. Where we know that she hasn't ever done this before. She's never been back to the green place since leaving it. So I think what she means is in her mind, Mm. she has done this many, many times. She's been preparing for this moment since she got here. Like, she's not from this place. She doesn't subscribe to their beliefs. Like, she just wants to go home. Mm. Maybe those are the nightmares she's waking up from, is, like, memories of where she came, right? Rather than, like, the death she's lost, but, like, the home that she lost, the, the place that she would love to be able to, like, bring these people back to. This is a good opportunity for us to switch over from the nightmare talk into the next chunk of this minute because Max and Furiosa and the war rig, they're just rolling through the dunes and they have a moment to breathe. And so Max turns over to Furiosa and says, how do you even know this place exists? And Furiosa reveals that she was born there. And Max, not understanding why anyone would, for instance, live in an oasis and then choose to voluntarily leave that oasis, even though he's seen firsthand people who will do that, i.e. the waiting ones and Savannah and the tribe that left. Yeah. Furiosa explains that she didn't leave of her own volition. It wasn't like she followed Savannah Nix out into the desert. She was taken. She was abducted. She says stolen, specifically. Mm. I wonder if Max 
has any assumptions or questions in his mind about this mysterious green place, if it might actually be the crack in the earth. Mm. I mean, he knows the geography much better than we do. We might be on the opposite side of the world here from Thunderdome. But Max does know that these places exist and they exist through a dooney desert to get there. It can be described as a hard day's ride mm-hmm. to get there. So he knows that this type of place exists. I wonder if it ever crossed his mind, wondering if it's the same place. Mm. It would be so crazy for the green place to actually be the crack in the earth. And Max shows up after being away for so long and the same people are there. That would be wild. It would be be so weird and i say that because the timeline of these movies really bothers me and i know that there's a certain way to look at it and i don't want to get into it but furiosa talks about how she was taken as a child now mel gibson is approximately 20 years older than Charlize theron which means that if we were still dealing with mel gibson as max furiosa would have been taken let's say sometime after the first Mad Max movie, when society is collapsing between Mad Max 79 and Road Warrior, Furiosa was off with her matriarchal society, and that's when she was taken. Mm. But then it's like trying to reconcile that situation because in the context of the narrative, it hasn't been 30 years between Thunderdome and Fury Road, and so that just makes my head hurt. And the more I think about it, the more that veins pop out of my head and I just don't want to get into it. And yet my analytic mind keeps pulling me back. I feel like I'm sitting in the front seat of a car and just a ton of hands are covering my face (laughs) and pulling me back. It's that sort of situation. This timeline doesn't make sense. Well, I have a bit of an explanation for you, perhaps. You, Rick, have been reading chapter by chapter for our Patreon subscribers, the novelization from Mad Max 79. And the very first picture that they paint for you is pre-apocalyptic, but Hmm. society is not doing so good. Mm. Things are not great. So I think that it's entirely possible that in that world that they're describing to us way back in Mad Max 79, that there might be a society that leaves the general society to go run their own group of people in their own way in a matriarchal fashion. Mm. And certainly within Morton Joe and his militaristic background, that they could go off and be doing things, forming the Citadel in very early pre-apocalyptic times. I believe that the apocalypse in this series is defined as when the nukes fell. Well, lots of stuff happened before the nukes fell. Mm. The nukes fell because things were so bad. I never considered the idea that like some of these groupings, places like the Citadel could have existed before the bombs fell. But I, I like where you're coming from, especially because like it was a world in decline before that event happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, even now we see groups of people who go off and do their own thing. I mean, Rick, you mm. made a reference to the Jonestown thing. So that was a cult that separated themselves from society. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then there's all sorts of groups of people who... Like doomsday preppers? Well, yes, but also people who 
aren't so doom and gloom about it, who just want to live in a communal society where they have everything in common and yeah. they go in on it together. People have been doing that for hundreds of years. It would make sense that groups like that would survive. Yeah, because they're separated from everybody else. Because they're already sort of self-sufficient. Yeah. It sounds like Furiosa's group were out in the middle of nowhere anyways, so they wouldn't necessarily be hit by the bombs. So they were a bunch of gosh darn hippies is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Good for them. I hear what you're saying, and it makes me think that Furiosa's abduction might be a bit more of a Law & Order SVU situation, where Furiosa being taken from her mother, from her people, could have been just a regular abduction. And her abductor either was part of Joe's cadre or became part of Joe's cadre when the bomb started falling. And so it could fit a lot better into the grand scheme of things than my initial musings would allow. Mm. I think so. A lot of post-apocalyptic movies and series have like, okay, apocalypse now. Well, apocalypse now. No. You know, the apocalypse is when the bombs fall and then things and then we're going to follow the journey of people. Mm -hmm. And Mad Max wasn't like that. We started beforehand. We know lots of stuff was happening beforehand. And then at some point during the series, the bombs fell. Yeah. You've got the gas wars, the water wars, the, I guess, war to end all wars, but not World War One type of thing. Mm. You get where I'm going at. <laughs> so perhaps when Furiosa was abducted, there was still a police force to report that to. Mm -hmm. And maybe her abduction was investigated. She just didn't have Liam Neeson to come take her. <laughs> nope. I guess, no, Liam Neeson doesn't take, Liam Neeson retrieves. You get yes. what I'm trying to say. 27 shots to jump over a fence. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> but Max follows up this statement that Furiosa was stolen by asking if she has ever done this before. And I'm assuming he's talking about driving people out into the green place. And she says many times. And we discussed earlier that that might be more of a mental planning thing than an actual literal driving out because she follows that up by saying, now that I drive a war rig, this is the best shot I'll ever have. Mm. Is the secret the thing where you think and you say what you want and then it happens? Like Furiosa's got a vision board hanging up in her cup. <laughs> yeah, like she's been running through the plan and dreaming about going back to the green place for years and years and years and never felt like she had the proper tools and abilities. And then she has this extra motivation of meeting the wives and she drives a war rig. So oh, I love the idea of Furiosa having a cork board or a scrapbook <laughs> or something like that. And every time she takes the war rig out raiding or she goes out with a salvage party, she finds these little old world magazines and news clippings. She's like cutting stuff out and pasting it in this booklet and she'll open it up and be like, yeah, and then I'll do this and there'll be buzzards <laughs> and then I'll go through the sandstorm, make a deal with the rock riders. And I love the idea of it. It's very Ocean's Eleven <laughs> that I've got in my head, even if it doesn't execute quite as well in the long run. I do like the idea that she's like meticulously planned this out since the beginning. That reminds me of a comment left on our Facebook page. As this comes out, this would have been a while back now, but 
something about on the initial chase leaving the Citadel, that it was part of Furios' plan that the buzzards would essentially help her clean up the war mm. party. Mm. That they would, a la Game of Thrones, fight each other, and then she only had to fight what was left. So in this scenario, she's Cersei. I gotcha. Interesting. That's our, <laughs> that our Game of Thrones reference of the week. Play, playing her opponents against each other. Remember when Game of Thrones was such a big thing? That seems like so long ago now. Yeah, by the time this comes out, the whole thing will be settled. <laughs> over and done with. We'll know what happened. Yeah, that's another peek behind the curtain. This is dropping in September and we're recording it back here in May. <laughs> <laughs> Three weeks left. Yep. <laughs> but that pretty much brings us to the end of today's minute. So Gary and Victoria... Could you, for our listeners, tell them where they can listen to more of your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. There is uh, three completed seasons of stuff Victoria and I have worked on. Two seasons of Harry Potter Minute and the entirety of Ferris Bueller's Minute Off are both available on DuelingGenre.com. So you can go over there and find those. Uh, we should be back sometime in the relatively near future with, uh, with season three that may be airing by the time people listen to this. So go check that out. <laughs> Absolutely do. As for us, we will be coming back on Wednesday. Max and Furiosa will continue their conversation. Nux will eat a bug and Furiosa will stop to take a look around. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 76 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.